take up the fourth commandment now, and um, and if we've had difficulty with the first three, trying to get through them, and all the, the questions about application that can come in, the fourth commandment is uh, is all the is all the worse. Remember, the fourth commandment is that we are to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath unto the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant nor thy cattle nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth to see and all that in them is and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Uh, my first comment, and this is going to be very brief, and will not do theological justice, but the first comment is that this makes reference to what is perhaps a divine Sabbath. That the that God himself rested from his creative work. Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3, and as I just read, Exodus uh, 20, verse 11. This was essentially a celebration of God's lordship over creation. God had finished his creative work. It was at this point that the creator stood over against a finished creation, and his lordship relationship to it was fully established. Okay, so there was a divine enjoyment of the creation, a celebration of God's lordship over his works. And the Sabbath celebrates the lordship of God, at least in three ways. It shows his victory. Uh, The glory of God had penetrated the darkness and had brought glory out of it. It celebrates his authority, where you see he declares that creation is good and that it's finished. And it celebrates his presence that he, you see, is the Lord standing over against creation. And this divine Sabbath was offered to Adam and Eve. In the third and fourth chapters of the book of Hebrews, the divine Sabbath uh, is given as a a promise, an eschatological promise, a promise of the end days, representing the consummation of God's redemptive blessings after the last judgment. That after all things have been done, God has consummated creation and redemption. We will enjoy the divine Sabbath with him. His redeemed are to enter in to his rest. Look especially at Hebrews 4, verse 4. For he hath said somewhere of the seventh on this wise, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, they shall not enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some should enter therein too, and they to whom the good tidings were before preached failed to enter in because of disobedience. He again defines a certain day. Today, saying in David, so long a time afterward, even as he had said before, today, if you shall hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Okay, Joshua didn't give the people rest. They didn't enter into the, into the rest of God. But God bids us to enter into his rest. So there is this divine rest that God enjoyed at creation and that we are, as redeemed people, um, bidden to enter into ourselves Um, the pattern of God is used in the commandment as the pattern then of the human Sabbath because there is a divine Sabbath we should live as God does and our pattern should be the working of six days and the resting on the seventh there's kind of a unity between the divine Sabbath and the human Sabbath then The uh, Sabbath in the Old Testament was a day of rest, uh, of refreshment from one's labors. It was also a day for meeting with God. You see, if we share God's rest, then he shares our rest as well. 
As his day belongs to us, so ours, our Sabbath, belongs to him. If we enter into his rest, then he must be part of our day of rest. And consequently, I'm, uh, I'm impressed by the fact that the Old Testament over and over and over again stresses that the, re- that the, day of re- that the Sabbath is a day of rest in the most physical sense of, of not doing your work and enjoying pleasure and refreshment apart from that. But I'm not impressed with the argument that says, therefore, there's a difference between Old Testament and New Testament Sabbath, because I think the Old Testament Sabbath was a day of weekly meeting for worshipers. It was certainly the day for synagogue education. And in the New Testament, uh, it's quite clear that because Christ rose on the first day, and the church meets on the first day, and takes uh, the Lord's Supper on the first day, celebrates the Lord's Day, as John calls it, and collects offerings on that day, that it's appropriate that worship be done on the Sabbath as well. Well, let's ask ourselves some... Well, is the Sabbath binding today, then? Should we keep the Sabbath? My argument, essentially, is that as a creation ordinance, since it it dates from creation, um, it will be a binding uh, ordinance for men until the consummation, that as long as we live in the new heavens and new earth, it is appropriate that the Sabbath be observed. Moreover, the book of Hebrews says, because of the future Sabbath rest, that uh, we are to enjoy the typological value of the redemptive Sabbath of God continues with us and we ought to continue to rest even in this age. Well, how about these passages of Scripture that seem to indicate in the New Testament that, uh, that days don't have to be observed? Um, I'm skimping ahead in my notes, so let me catch up here. Well, as I'm going, notice some of these scripture passages that reinforce the Sabbath as a creation ordinance. Exodus 20.11 did so, but also Exodus 31.17. And then in Mark 2.27, Jesus says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Um, It is for man's good that he follow the Sabbath. In Mark 2.28, So then the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Well, if the Sabbath is no longer a binding institution, then Jesus' point about being Lord over the Sabbath would not have much application. He'd be Lord over something that doesn't even apply today. And so it seems to me there is this continuing obligation to the Sabbath. But in Romans 14, verse 5, in Colossians 4, verses 9 and following, I'm sorry, Galatians 4, verses 9 and following, in Colossians 2, 16 to 17, we have the idea that day-keeping is not binding on Christians. Um, And these are troublesome passages. For the sake of time, I'm just going to say they are awkward, to be sure. But just because they're awkward doesn't mean we aren't to do something with them. And I want to go on and suggest that um, there's plenty else in the New Testament, plenty of teaching elsewhere in the New Testament that shows that day-keeping is required. Um... Hebrews 10.25 makes it clear that attendance at such meetings as when the church is meeting is not optional. And thus there were some days and times set aside that had to be respected. For the Corinthian church, Paul ordained a certain day, the first day of the week, on which offerings were to be brought. And in light of the synagogue and Old Testament pattern, and in light of uh, common sense, it's hard to believe that that uh, ordaining of the first day for offerings was not offerings in the midst of worship. So that apparently was the day in which it was sinful for people to avoid uh, the assembling together. In Revelation 1.10, John speaks of the Lord's day. He's not speaking here of the day of the Lord, by the way. 
he's speaking at the final eschatological day, he's speaking of a particular day of the week in which he received his revelation, the Lord's Day. Um, consequently, the passages that are awkward do not rule out all observance of days or even make such observance optional in every case. Uh, and at that point, our obligation is to get into the exegesis of those passages and find out um, what specifically is being referred to since it can't contradict the idea of keeping the Lord's Day in the New Testament. You're following my argument? What I'm saying is that they may be awkward, but they're not so awkward as to make them contradictory to what is very clearly the case that the Lord's Day was to be observed by Christians in the New Testament. And let's look at some of those awkward passages very quickly. Uh, neither the Romans nor the Galatians passage mentions specifically the Sabbath. There were many other days, plural, observed in the Old Covenant economy, and uh, it's not impossible, it seems to me, those passages refer to the other days, and perhaps even to extra-biblical festivals that were being um, uh, pressed upon Christians. In Galatians, the, the problem is specifically works righteousness, too. Uh, Paul's not arguing against observance of days as such, but against observance of day as a means of self-justification. And in that respect, we could even argue against the Sabbath day, which we believe to be binding. I mean, if one uses that as a form of self-justification, then it ought to be condemned. Not Sabbath itself, the observing of it, but the observing of it in that way. And that's what Galatians is talking about, and one mustn't forget it. Um... And it's not even really clear that Paul is speaking of Old Testament ordinances at all in Galatians 4.10, because from verses 2 and 8 of the same chapter, it may be that Paul is alluding to the pre-Christian experience in general of those Christians, and therefore days that were observed in paganism. Now, the Colossians, passion, the Colossians passage does mention Sabbath, the word Sabbath specifically, and it includes such Sabbaths among the shadows which pass away in the New Covenant. However, we have to remember that the word Sabbath in the Bible doesn't apply only to the weekly Sabbath, but to the various feast days of the Old Covenant calendar. And these were clearly distinguished from the weekly Sabbath, even in the Old Testament itself. And so it's not impossible to assume that, that Paul knew that the Colossians would make that distinction very naturally between the weekly Sabbath and then the, the festival calendar. Now, while this is not definitive, I do think an interesting case has been made by John Mitchell, who was formerly the editor of the Presbyterian Guardian, that when Paul speaks of feast, new moon, and Sabbath, he's really not talking about days in particular, but sacrifices that were required in the Old Testament. Now, why would he argue that way? Well, that would fit in with the idea that this is the shadows that pass away, so I mean, it fits that. But moreover, the idea that Paul could speak of feast, new moon, and Sabbath in the same breath with meat and drink makes one think, well, that pertains to the dietary views of the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, there aren't any dietary uh, restrictions on drink. However, there is the use of the language of the Old Testament of meat offering and drink offering and Sabbath offering. And so consequently, Paul might here be speaking of us not being obliged to the, the Jewish uh, sacrificial offerings in that pattern. Now, I don't have time to, to say much more about that or to, to get into it at length, but I simply want to suggest to you that these awkward passages are not so awkward as to keep us from what is the natural conclusion that this is a creation ordinance, there yet remains the Sabbath rest, Jesus says he's Lord of the Sabbath, uh, the church observed the Lord's day and with pain of discipline if it wasn't, and so forth. George. That's 2.16 passage, possibly referring to the 
refer to uh, some Christians desiring to adhere to the last day of the week as the Sabbath rather than the first. Now, I've never seen a very convincing case to that effect. I, and I'm not even sure that I'm real familiar with that option, to tell you the truth, George. Um, it doesn't strike me that that would be the point. In other words, don't keep the Sabbath, but keep the Lord's day. And yet, the Bible says that when the women went to the tomb, Matthew's Gospel in particular says that when they went to Jesus' tomb, they went on the first of the Sabbaths. Now, some, many take that to mean, that's a Jewish expression for the first day of the week, the first of the, of the seven-day cycle, the first of the Sabbath. Others have interpreted it, and I guess because of my theological <laughs> predisposition, I tend to think that might be Matthew's theological reflection on the fact that that amounted to the first Sabbath in the Christian uh, dispensation, the first of the Sabbaths. Well, uh, so I'm not even sure that uh, the Sabbath can't be an appropriate word for what we're observing on the first day of the week now, even though it's not the seventh day of the week. Um, I'm going to assume that most of us will follow this very hurried exposition that the Sabbath is a binding obligation today. I want to get into some of the difficult questions. Um, and the first is the question of recreation. Does resting on the Sabbath preclude recreation? Well, if recreation is pleasurable activity different from one's daily labors, then the Sabbath rest is really recreation par excellence, isn't it? Pleasurable activity different from one daily labor. Note how the Bible calls the Sabbath a celebration. It's a time of delight, Isaiah 58:13. Now, how about the propriety of pleasurable activities on the Sabbath? It's one thing to say the Sabbath should be a pleasure, and it ought to be. But there are those who say we oughtn't to do anything pleasurable. Well, Isaiah 58, 13, and 14, which is really the, the battering ram of a lot of uh, the expositions of the Sabbath about doing things, forbids doing, quote, your own pleasure as opposed to God's pleasure. The word pleasure in Hebrew there means will, however, doing your own will contrary to God's will. And so I'm not sure that Isaiah 58, 13 tells us anything about what is appropriate or inappropriate on the Sabbath, but simply says we ought to be doing God's will and not our own devising on the Sabbath day. But now whether doing something pleasurable is contrary to God's will is not answered by the passage. Do you see my point? I really think that's just another expression of our obligation to the Sabbath and does not tell us, well, it tells us it ought to be a pleasure to keep the Sabbath, but it doesn't tell us what is, uh, is uh, excluded by and included by pleasure on the Sabbath day. Exodus 31.17 and Exodus 23.12 both mention refreshment on the Sabbath day. And so, I confess that I'm a little bit uneasy when the Westminster Confession forbids on the Sabbath all works, words, and thoughts about worldly enjoyments and recreation. Because this is to be a day holy for worship. Well, in the Old Covenant, at least, that would not have been an appropriate uh, statement to make. There was physical rest, to be sure, and I think there was a, a form of refreshment and rejoicing and enjoyment that would not have been in the strictly cultic sense, wor cultic sense worship. And since I don't believe that there is a principial difference between Old and New Testament Sabbath, I am willing to say that some forms of recreation can be appropriate on the Sabbath. Now, before the hands go up and you start asking about tennis and football and watching football and all that, 
the answer to all those questions is going to be the same. So I'll have to wear you down giving it over and over again before you'll stop, maybe. I don't see that there's any way for me as an individual to tell you as an individual when refreshment ceases and labor begins. Uh, I believe there are absolutes about the Sabbath, but I believe the application of those absolutes is not absolute because of the varying conditions of humanity and culture and all the rest. In other words, I don't want to say that because I couldn't go to a professional football game on Sunday, and, uh, and then you have to start qualifying, of course, the paying of money and all the rest, the professionalism of it, and so forth. I don't want to say that because I can't watch a football game on, Sab- on the Sabbath and, uh, and be worshiping God and resting properly, that it's psychologically impossible for anybody to do so. You see what I'm getting at? Um, so I don't want to I don't want to become a moral pope about this or that application, but I do want to say that it doesn't strike me that refreshment and enjoyment are wrong on the Sabbath outside of the narrow focus of cultic worship. All right, do you want to ask any questions about that? Judy? I always try to think uh, whether it be watching the horseback riding on Sunday because I rather suspect, even as light as you are, that it is still work for a horse to have to give a ride to somebody else. Yeah, I think that is clearly a case of letting your animals rest. The horse should not be ridden, except in necessity. You have to ride to the doctor to save somebody's <laughs> life or something. Um, I'll tell you kind of a, a strange thing, and I hate to share personal experiences. They aren't very authoritative. But when I was growing up in the OPC, we'd go to a family conference, which was often over a Sabbath day, and uh, the ministers of the Presbytery always had this very stern, you know, uh, approach to children who would take a softball out on the grass after, a, you know, an afternoon nap and the singing of hymns and all that and be fellowshipping with each other by throwing the ball around. And I don't mean in the sense of... Uh, you know, getting into some heavy baseball game where they've just totally forgotten who they were and where they're going, just caught up in the excitement. But I mean, just in a casual sense, having something to do. And the ministers would always instruct the parents that what they should do is take a nature hike. And, you know, even as a child, I, I had enough wisdom, I hope, to have seen. I don't see why it is that because the ministers enjoy walking, you know, a couple of miles through the mountains and coming back for the evening service, that that isn't labor for them that uh, it wouldn't be labor for somebody else. And it so happens I don't enjoy hiking too much. However, it doesn't really strain me very much to toss the ball with my son and talk to him about the things of the Lord on Sunday. What I want to know is if I'm tossing the ball with my son and rehearsing his catechism questions to be, you know, crass about it, is that violating the Sabbath? And I'm not prepared to say in all cases it must be. And that's what I was getting at. Uh, what is recreation for one may be, uh, I mean, refreshment for one may be labor for another. But for your horse... I think probably giving a ride to somebody would have to be seen as his work. George? Uh, should we ask if we're wondering about a certain situation? It's about to ask if we would call someone else a place that we should be from that uh, thing. Once again, I'm, I'm not following. Should we say refrain from doing something if it would call someone else a labor if it's not within the Yes. Isn't that what the commandment is getting at, that our ox and our ass and our maidservant and manservant are not to labor either? And so if we're causing somebody else to work... But see, even then now, you have to start being accurate in your in your talk about this. Um, if a restaurant is open and you're out preaching and you're starving on the way back, uh, we probably could all 
afford to starve a little bit. But um, you have to have a meal and so forth. And the restaurant's business does not depend upon whether you stop there or not. Then I, for one, am a little wary um, about coming to the conclusion that you cannot under those circumstances. It doesn't seem to me you then are the cause of them laboring. They are laboring, and you're taking advantage uh, of that uh, provision. Um, some very strict Sabbatarians, like John Murray, have even argued that it's appropriate that there be restaurants open on, you know, the Sabbath, so that women don't have to labor. I don't buy that argument, but I just want to let you know that we have to take into account differing circumstances. Women can make sandwiches on Saturday too. <laughs> yes. It would, it would just seem to me that whether or not people would be working on the Lord's Day, uh, if Christians did or did not do things, for example, a restaurant is not a Christian's involvement. Let's say, for example, in the, uh, the watching of sports games on the Lord's Day. Uh, first of all, if it's a live performance, it's got to take all the people involved to put the thing on the air. It's got to take the, the uh, people working at the stadium. It's got to take the players that are doing it for the monetary gain, etc., etc. Whether or not a believer watches that doesn't really make a whole lot of difference to whether or not they put that game on. But is not a believer's watching that game on the Lord's Day, nevertheless tacit approval of that type of behavior. It doesn't seem plausible on the surface to me that it is, but pursue the question. Well, what I'm getting at is that if, you, if you're saying that, that it is not right to cause other people to labor on the Lord's Day, but since they're already laboring, I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway, it's really saying that, well, okay, uh, supposing, it just seems to me that... Um, that that's an area where where we would have as believers an opportunity for witnessing. I don't care whether or not my watching this particular game makes them work, but because I believe it's wrong for other people to make them work, my principles are going to stand that I don't think that it, you know this type of behavior is falls within the purview of Scripture. Whether or not unbelievers would make them work seems to me to be a, you know an issue somewhat apart from whether or not a believer ought to be involved in that. I've been listening closely, Jim, and I, I, it seems to me I agree with all the, just about all the sentences you said, but I don't agree with the way they've been joined together. Um, you've, I would agree we are not to cause people to work, and you've agreed that my watching it doesn't cause them to work. I would agree that I must be a good witness to others. I, I agree that, um, that if there was some way that Christians could band together and have a movement that might put an end to it, that we ought to take part in it. What I'm not sure of is that when it's going to happen no matter what, and there's nobody around I'm offending and all that, that the turning on of a football game on Sunday in itself constitutes Sabbath violation. It's hard to believe that this is uh, worshipful, right? Um, but then again, it isn't hard to believe that I could throw the ball at my son and rehearse catechism questions with him. But is it not complicity in the, in the, whole, the whole aspect of Well, that's what I'm waiting to hear. How is it? How is it complexity in it? Well, how would it, how would it really be any, any different than that? Uh, oh, I just I guess I, I don't understand the, the the frame of mind between the way in which an unbeliever would approach that and the way a believer would. Let me let me try to give you let me try to give you a parallel. Uh, let's say you take your your children to see a movie, and it's and it's a very good movie, a Walt Disney movie. Gee, you know, whole thing. Uh, but you know something about the movie industry, and as. Uh, as wholesome and as family-oriented as Walt Disney is, the fact is, I think you all know this, that the, that the uh, motion, picture, motion picture industry is riddled with homosexuality. Uh, it's pretty hard to believe that somewhere along the line, even in the making of you know, The Cat from Outer Space, there wasn't a homosexual who was getting paid for his work on that movie set. 
All right, if I take my children to watch it, is that complexity in his homosexuality? Am I supporting his homosexuality? I don't see how. Okay, good. I, I'm glad that argument's not convincing. Now, when I turn on the TV, how am I supporting the Sabbath-breaking of those who are playing? Because you're knowing full well that they are breaking the Sabbath. Well, I, I know that, but my question is, they don't know that I'm watching them. Oh, no, wait a minute. Whether or not they uh, are dependent upon my watching it is the question. They're going to be, the TV station may make the uh, contract to pay a certain amount to the team, the teams that are playing, and they will do that on the assumption that people are going to watch. And if we all as Christians got together and kept people from watching, maybe the TV stations would knock that off. Now, that argument I'm entirely in favor of. But the idea that, you know, a guy walks by his TV set and turns it on and watches a quarter of football, um, I can't see very strong motivation for doing it. I mean, when we start looking for the other aspects of Christian ethics, seeking the glory of God and, and the motivation of faith and love, I just don't see much reason on the Sabbath to do that sort of thing. We're talking about what is and what is not prohibited. And I'm not sure that it's causing people to labor, and I'm not sure that it's encouraging them to labor. Now, if there are people in my home and so forth and all that, then there's a question of witness. But I can, again, conceive of circumstances under which it might not... Uh, be a violation of any of those other commandments about a bad witness and so forth. I don't see that it's strictly complexity in the working of those people. Now, we've we've gotten off on a wrong foot in discussing this example to begin with because we're dealing with something which is rather clearly sinful because it deals with uh, their monetary gain on the Sabbath. I'm still willing to use that example because complexity is the issue. What do I do to engage in support of, of an activity? And what don't I do? Um, and I wouldn't want to give any encouragement to, uh, to professional sports on Sunday. But it seems to me a person could watch somebody playing football without supporting professionalism on Sunday, without guess, supporting it, and okay. without even approving of it. He could say, well, this is relaxing for me, but, you know, I sure wish it were on Monday night instead of now. In fact, I'm so uncomfortable with it, I'm going to turn it off. And I, I could understand that, but I don't think he would be sinning if he you know, left it on for five more minutes. Well, it seems to me to be, to be inconsistent to say... Well, I myself, as a person, as a believer, would find it morally uh, culpable to go out and play sports as a professional uh, member of a football team on the Lord's Day. But it's all right for me to go ahead and watch it on the Lord's Day, knowing full well that it is requiring them to. This is the same argument that you're running. I'm still looking for some support for the argument, though, Jim. You say that it seems inconsistent, and I can understand the distress. I mean, it's a common enough opinion. I'm just asking, is it inconsistent? Okay, well, it's one thing to play football. It's another thing to, to watch it on TV. Okay, I guess I'm, I'm trying to think through it. But, but in order to watch it on TV, they have to be violating the Sabbath. Yeah, and if they weren't violating the Sabbath, they wouldn't be there to watch, and we'd all praise the Lord. I certainly would. They're but the question is, if it's being done, and, uh, and you're not supporting it, and see, you're, I've yet to see how I'm supporting it. If you're not supporting it, the question is, are you violating the Sabbath? If it's refreshment for you. We may have doubts as to whether it can be refreshment. I'm saying, if it were. Mickey. Suppose Nielsen should call you while you were watching it and ask you, are you watching your professional football for what you said? So you shouldn't be working on Sunday. I won't answer the question. <laughs> Now, if I ever got caught in that bind, I mean, there are ways around uh, encouraging others to watch it, right? <laughs> now, if I had a TV set, as I understand it, some of those ratings are, you know, people have TV sets that register what's on. Then um, I should say necessity would be laid upon me not to turn on the TV so that we give encouragement to stations to go off the air. 
It may not be very likely because what they'd probably do is try better and better programming until they finally get the, the ratings up. See, the whole question, I think we all agree that we'd like to get this sort of thing not done on Sunday. And, and, and maybe what I'm struggling to say, and, and, and not convincing all of you, and that's okay, uh, is, I mean, if we're really going to wage a campaign against this, let's wage an effective campaign and not talking about how we're supporting it, this, that, and the other. Um, that doesn't strike me as, as in itself sinful, but I'd be more than happy to do all sorts of things to, to drive these people out of business if we could. I'm just not sure that I'm either driving them out by not watching or supporting them in business by watching. Well, but that's a factual premise, I suppose. Well, commercials that come on uh, in between the plays, you know, and, you're, and they're selling a product and it's coming into your home and you're, you know, you're watching them selling your product. Do they do that on Sunday, too? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like asking my three-year-old son whether my five-year-old son was praying with his eyes closed or not. <laughs> what about these commercials now? Well, they're selling a product to you, yeah. and you know that, that television is a medium for them to sell their product. Yeah. And we, you know, we sit and watch it. I think that's a stronger argument than the idea that you're supporting the people playing football. And I think there may be some uh, some plausibility to the idea that you're what you're actually doing is opening the door to advertisement, which you don't believe is right on on Sunday. Well, how how do we get into this? Let's get back to this premise, and um, however you decide the factual question of application. My point is, don't rule out the idea of refreshment a priori, but you may want to be very cautious as to how you define and apply uh, the idea of refreshment to the Sabbath. All right? Sir? Why are you looking at the television to start with? For refreshment. Is it for the glory of God? I think watching a, a Christian choral group sing on Sunday can certainly be for the glory of God. Well, now, you said, why would I be watching the, the TV? And I'm saying, I can watch TV on Sunday for the glory of God. And I'm, I'm trying to force you to think, if nothing else, that perhaps we have to be cautious in our reasoning. Maybe somebody might even be able to watch football to the glory of God. He, he tells me to delight myself in the Lord. Delight. Yeah. I'm looking for the delight. Okay. Okay. I'm delight myself in the Lord. Are you saying that it's impossible to delight yourself in the Lord? And well, now. I'm not sure of that. Yes. Well, now, if you go to a football game on Monday night, okay, do you think you're indulging the desires of the flesh there in any sinful way? All right. And what I'm saying is, do you think it's possible to go to a football game for the glory to the glory of God? Um. Maybe the point can be made this way. However we reason about football per se on Sunday or watching football per se, the argument cannot be so strong that it rules out all football unless we're prepared to say that is the argument. It has nothing to do with the Sabbath now. My argument's against football per se. Uh, and it seems to me that if football is right at some times and is refreshing at some times, it's at least a candidate for refreshment on Sunday. Now, we're asking the propriety because of the professionalism and all that, and that's well and good. And I'm glad that it, it forces us to argue with each other about it uh, so that we can sharpen our, our conception. But I'm not sure that we want to argue against things on Sunday 
when the arguments ruled them out on the six days of the week, too. And to the degree we are, we're not arguing about Sabbath matters. We're talking about the things in themselves. Yes. That's right. Well, if somebody, you know, watched football and was worshiping pleasure more than God, then it would clearly be a violation of Scripture. The issue here is whether, in watching a football game, it is worshiping pleasure more than God. And um, let's leave it at that as a challenging question for all of us to answer. Uh, how about um, the change of day? I guess that's one question we ought to look at before we run on. Somebody might argue, well, if you um, Christians and theonomists and so forth believe that you can change the uh, day for Sabbath observance, why can't the whole pattern of Sabbath keeping um, be changed? Why can't the whole order, uh, the whole ordinance of God also undergo this kind of radical transformation? Well, there's something of an ambiguity in this language of change of day. And I think we have to get clear on what we mean when we talk about change of day. Uh, when somebody says, well, we change from Saturday worship to Sunday worship, we change from Saturday to Sunday, that could mean merely a change in the name of the day on which we rest. But certainly, that is not what is at issue here, the change of a name. Um, somebody says, well, the change from the day observed in the Old Testament to the day following it. Well, since the calendar has changed so often in so many respects, we really don't know on what day of the week the Sabbath was observed in the Old Testament period. And even during that period, it's doubtful that the calendar remained entirely constant. And there are those who argue that the Sabbath changed days of the week because of the two-day Sabbath observance cycle uh, every six months. So that you would observe the Sabbath, say, on Saturday, and, and then after six months, there would be a two-day Sabbath and a six-day break. And so it became Sunday, and then Monday, and so forth. Um, now, that may not be right, but the point is it's up for grabs as to whether there was a permanent Saturday Sabbath to begin with. And surely it cannot be argued, especially in the New Testament period, that there is a divinely commanded calendar. Um, our inability to locate the precise day on which the biblical characters rested is not due to sin. The Bible doesn't intend to inform us of that sort of thing. Uh, and there's no divinely commanded location for the international date line either. Uh, there may be some matter of human initiative in determining these sorts of questions. And so when we talk about change of day... Uh, let's not make the day so magical and so forth that we forget the ambiguities involved. Um, the question is, then, what is the divine authorization for a change in the uh, first day symbolism of Sabbath rest from the last day of the week symbolism of Sabbath rest? The important thing is that the Jews worshipped on the last day of the week and we worship on the first day of the week. However, you cut that with date line and, and calendar, calendar change and all the rest. Well, I think even in the Old Testament there is some sabbatical symbolism associated with the first day or what is often called the eighth day in the sequence. Uh, the divine Sabbath of Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3, remember, began on the first complete day of man's existence. God's Sabbath, which he intended to share with man, marked the beginning of man's life. Uh, in Leviticus 23, 9 to 21, we read of the first fruits in Pentecost, and the wave offering was given on the morrow after the Sabbath. The meal offering on the morrow after the seventh Sabbath. And um, 
both days are Sabbaths, even though the word is not used there, in a holy convocation where no servile work was to be done is prescribed. And so even in the Old Testament, God called his people to observe occasionally first day Sabbath enjoyment. In Leviticus 23:24, the blowing of the trumpets took place on the first day of the seventh month as an indication of the divine presence. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, Leviticus 23, verses 33 to 44, were first and eighth day Sabbaths. Um, and one must remember that with respect to the tabernacles, that was a foreshadowing of Christ tabernacling among his people. So one might want to argue that it's appropriate that on the first day of the week, Christians enjoy the Sabbath that Christ gives them, tabernacling among them. Um, well, anyway, there's plenty of Old Testament background for that. And then in the New Testament, the essence of the Sabbath is God meeting, uh, that man meets with God. And Christ is the definitive meeting point of man with God. He is our Sabbath rest. He calls his disciples, in effect, to drop all their work and follow him. Um, he does say that he will give us rest and so forth. And so the first day resurrection and resurrection appearances of our Lord are appropriately and theologically taken into account in the change of day. And there was, in fact, Acts 2.1, Acts 20, verses 6 and 7, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, first day gatherings of the apostolic church. And so we follow their example in worshiping on that day. And my conclusion, basically, is that the apostolic practice against the Old Testament foreshadowing justifies the use of the first day as the Christian day of worship. And in all likelihood, as a memorial of the day of resurrection and redemption, even as for the Jews, the Sabbath was to remind them of God redeeming them for the land of Egypt. I have more, but I'm not going to go into more. That basically is what I want to tell you about the change of day. What questions would you like to ask about um, the Sabbath? Paul? question of the uh, of some things that, that you might do on the Sabbath. One, one statement I noticed that you made on several occasions was that doing certain things um, in regard to doing certain things you feel like you weren't sure they were wrong. And I was just wondering um, if uh, that wouldn't if you couldn't apply the uh, principle of of whatever is faith never is not a faith is a sin mm -hmm. absolutely yeah and that's uh, in my haste I, I have um, not mentioned that that's a very good point um, the point I'm trying to make is my not being sure it's wrong well, I said that for the purpose of me not condemning you in doing it that is being careful in what I consider a proper um, observance of the Sabbath and there may be borderline cases where for one person but for not and so forth however if it's if it's me in terms of my practice, and I'm not sure that it's right, then it's sin. Whatever cannot be done in faith is sin. Uh, and so understand that the context of my point about not being sure it's wrong was not being sure that I have a right to bring discipline against somebody for doing it. But uh, I couldn't be allowed to do it unless I was convinced in my own heart that I you know, had the right to do so. Mickey? What about the historical argument that the church observed both the uh, Jewish Sabbath and the first day of the week? I'm just not sure of the evidence for that. That's the that's the problem. I mean, I've heard it, but I'm not convinced that... I mean, it may be there. I just I haven't seen the foundation for that. I'm not sure of that. What conclusion would that lead us to, would you think? Well, I just think that, uh, they still observe the first day of the week sort of along the lines of the uh, 
the Seventh Day Adventists, you know, saying that they didn't change it, that they didn't change immediately. Like mm-hmm. we sometimes tend to think that they were just a turning on, oh. turning off, as though it turned off the Seventh. You know. Well, that wouldn't disturb my argument in the slightest, because with a change of a practice that has been going on for two thousand years it's not at all likely that there would be a clear conception in a change just like that. It probably was a period uh, that was rather foggy. I mean, Paul still engaged in a Nazarite vow, and the Jews were still quite upset about certain things of the Old Testament having to be kept, even though they didn't strictly have to be. And um, I think that the, the change from the old order to the new did leave this overlap, and there probably would have been some, some grayness and fogginess of conception. So... Um, that wouldn't, that wouldn't bother me. I, mean, I just say in the nature of the case, that sort of thing happens and the confusion exists. But that doesn't, that doesn't change the fact that the apostles gave us a clear example of, of uh, honoring the day of resurrection. Greg? Um, what, what do you say about uh, the fact that the, the Sabbath has, uh, has elements of the, uh, the moral law and the... the uh, ceremonial law and, and the civil law to someone who uh, uh, who wants to say that you don't I'm not sure what I heard, I've heard somebody say that that your argument on theonomy falls apart on just on that particular point that, that all these different elements of the law come together in fact I think it was one of the uh, in the, in the faculty debate that they brought that out. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the argument for theonomy doesn't uh, stand or fall on any conception of the Sabbath. Because what theonomy, what theonomy argues is that we ought to keep every jot and tittle of the Word of God as our moral standard, and that one cannot, from the outset, dismiss the Old Testament as being old. Now, if somebody comes along and says, now, when we do our exegesis of every jot and tittle, we find out that the New Testament makes... Sorry. Please turn tape over at this time. What the honorary argues is that we ought to keep every jot and tittle of the Word of God as our moral standard, and that one cannot, from the outset, dismiss the Old Testament as being old. Now, if somebody comes along and says, now, when we do our exegesis of every jot and tittle, we find out that the New Testament makes certain alterations, and that in the Old Testament the Sabbath was something of unique institution where what we, in terms of theological shorthand, call ceremonial elements and judicial elements and, and moral elements are to be found, uh, are all intertwined, that wouldn't do a, a single thing to the argument. What that would simply say is, well, in the Old Testament there was this unique institution that um, brought all these things together for some reason. That doesn't mean that they can't be distinguished. I mean, in, in the New Testament, the divine and human natures of Christ are brought together and intertwined. That doesn't mean we can't distinguish them. And the argument of theonomy doesn't fall or rise on the exegesis of any particular question either. Now, while I offer some of my own opinions on particular questions, the fact is the underlying theonomic principle is that we pay attention to all that Scripture says. And if somebody hasn't done his exegetical homework, then what that means is you have to look at every jot and tittle and correct it. The very effort to correct it is, in fact, an endorsement of the theonomic principle. See what I'm getting at? Uh, the argument cannot stand or fall on any particular instance because the point is only exegesis of the scripture allows us to condone a change or alteration. And exegesis of the scripture in general does not offer that. But when, when we have it, like in the ceremonial laws, I don't resist that. And if somebody were to show that the Sabbath is in large measure, uh, our elements of the Sabbath in large measure were ceremonial, I mean, that wouldn't bother me. 
in terms of the theonomic principle. I mean, I may disagree with the exegesis, but that does not affect the point that the Old Testament continues to have binding moral authority unless the New Testament says otherwise or makes some alteration. You get the point? Something needs to be said, um, and at this point I'm going to probably depart from my notes and just now go down the outline like I warned I might have to. The uh, Sabbath commandment, while we think and properly think about all these questions of rest and necessity and the change of day, also uh, the Sabbath commandments, the Old Testament, tell us things about ecology and the care for the poor and the, Christ- and the, the godly work ethic, if you will, that should be observed. Um, every seventh year the land was to lie fallow for instance, and that was a way of uh, um, blessing the land and uh, rejuvenating it and so forth. And there's to be a concern then that we have for land and for its proper management, if nothing else. That principle is taught by uh, the Sabbath laws pertaining to land in the Old Testament. Then the seventh year was a time for remitting the debts of the poor, those who had um, taken loans because of necessity. Um, There were to be tithes taken for... Uh, festival purposes for the poor so that they might have enjoyment. Uh, so the Sabbath has elements that touch on the Christian's obligation to uh, uh, to relieve the distress of those who are financially not as well off as we are. And uh, you should keep that in mind. And remember that the commandment is not simply a commandment to rest. It's a commandment to work, too. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. And the Sabbath is the rest. It's the Sabbath of the Lord your God. Uh, this requires that uh, we engage in six days of work. And you'll have to do some thinking what that means in terms of um, uh, lobbying for a four-day work week and that sort of thing. Um, now, if a, four, a four-day work week is passed and the other two days are spent in labor but just not of the same sort, then there's no difficulty. But if the desire of men is to find greater and greater and greater vacation periods and get further and further away from work, then that is a violation of the Sabbath law as well. Somebody might reason, well, God wants us to rest one day in seven. If we rest two days in seven, we're twice as holy. Right? And three and four, and we don't have to work at all. And my point is, this is really covering all our time in the appropriate proportions. Working six and resting the seventh. And that is a uh, pattern that is not to be changed. Any questions on the Sabbath? The fifth commandment... Go ahead, Paul. You just mentioned the, um, the sabbatical year... Um, well, I would say that the instructions about the sabbatical year and jubilee, to the extent that they uh, are distinctively tied to the Jewish dispensation, to the land and to the Jewish calendar and to the foreshadows of redemption, is not binding on us today except as instruction about the coming Messiah. But there are also moral principles incorporated even in that ceremonial approach to those, um, those uh, Sabbath years such as not being in debt more than six years at a time, taking care of the poor, resting the land, and so forth. And I, and in my very quick and insufficient remarks about ecology and the poor, I was simply trying to point out that there's a moral equity and principle to be found even in those laws. But as to what the specific equity might be, um, I'm not going to uh, get into tonight. And I'm not able to get into even if I had more time on that question. I'm just not well-versed enough on it. The Sabbath is a difficult question. To my way of thinking, a book, a good book on all the Sabbath legislation and the change of day and the whole thing would be one of the most worthwhile things somebody, a theologian, can do. Uh, But I think there are so many misconceptions at the foundation of moral theology today that aren't many people around who are in a position to write it. That isn't to say I'm in a position to write it either. I just haven't done my homework. But I, um, 
I would dread seeing it written by a dispensationalist or somebody who has an inconsistent view of Reformed theology and dispensationalism mixed together and stuff like that. So I'll, get, I'll go so far in terms of the foundations and the moral equity and all that, but the specifics I'm not prepared to get into. The fifth commandment about honoring your father and mother. Um, note that throughout the Bible that the honor that is to be given to father and mother is, uh, is a deference that has its limits. Honoring your father and mother doesn't mean that you do whatever they say. It means you do what they say in the Lord, uh, as, as they require us to do the things that God would have us to do uh, as they pursue their proper authority. And then the objects of this honor are not simply our, our uh, family heads, mother and father, but throughout the Bible, um, other kinds of superiors are deemed father and mother, such as the civil magistrate, teachers, um, and so forth. The biblical view of the family, I suppose this group doesn't need me to say much about that, although I had some things that might have been interesting for you. Um, there is, in fact, uh, reason to be skeptical of the movement today for children's rights um, over against the authority of their mothers and fathers. Uh, the promise of prosperity that is given here, Paul calls this the first commandment given with promise. And it should be remembered that this promise of prosperity ties in specifically with the Abrahamic covenant, which is an embarrassment to those who want to divide Abraham from Moses and pit them against each other. Paul says the first commandment with promise is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise, that you will dwell in the land, you see, and so long days will be given to you in the prosperity of the land. And that should remind us also that there are passages in Deuteronomy and Leviticus that promise cultural prosperity for a nation that will keep God's law in general, too that those who are children of God who honor their father by following all his commandments will be given prosperity. Now, in terms of application of the commandment, um, I'm only going to be able to mention some things that are of particular concern to me in all of these. And one is the um, whole question of senior citizens. Uh, there was a day when, of course, um, the elderly members of one, one's family would be taken in by the children and kept by the children, and in modern society, with the nuclear family, we've gotten away from that idea. And my, uh, my simple point, very moralistically, is it seems to me the Bible is much wiser. And that we ought to be caring for our, our parents and, and um, enjoying their wisdom and uh, their babysitting and their love for their grandchildren and all the rest. That, that the Bible requires that kind of, uh, of respect for them. In fact, those who will not take care of their parents... It seems to me come under the uh, apostolic condemnation that a man is worse than an infidel if he doesn't care for his own. And his own includes not just his wife and his children, but also his mother and father, because the Bible says that children are to care for their parents in old age. Um, I just want to say so much more, but I'd better not. I'll skip this deference to human authority. Etiquette. Now, I've heard some interesting applications of the fifth commandment to the notion of etiquette meaning we should respect those who are in authority, we should have a proper deference in these matters. Part of the cultural form of our society should be respected. We oughtn't to be uh, rebellious against it. And there's truth in this. Now, when you go to somebody's home, uh, it is not polite to spit on their rug. All right? It's, it's a violation of etiquette. And I'll, it's a violation of the Eighth Commandment, too. It's destroying pri private property and it's not being polite. And there should be deference toward the host and respecting his property and his well-being and you don't come in and malign his children and that sort of thing. So I'm not condemning etiquette in, in this broad sense. But on the other hand, I think, well, all is said and done, 
our 20th century conceptions of etiquette have been grossly anti-Christian. And if that sounds strong, let me explain. You know, we are taught, if you read these etiquette manuals, or if you just listen to the proper upbringing of a, of a uh, young man or a young woman, uh, they will be taught that um, if you invite somebody to your home for dinner, it is to be expected that, um, that they will reciprocate. Consequently, you wouldn't want to invite to your home, and I mean, this is said, and with uh, outwardly all the best intentions, you wouldn't invite to your home somebody that is so below you in social class that it would make it awkward on them and embarrassing because they couldn't invite you back. And yet the Bible commends hospitality to those who, the Bible says, have no ability to return the favor. You see, in this sense, our, our notions of, of what is proper and right and etiquette just fly in the face of the graciousness of the Christian man and woman. And uh, so etiquette can get in the way. And then we have matters of etiquette about coming to church, too. All of you have thought through this question already, I'm sure, so I won't belabor it. But, um, you know, over and over again we hear about how we're supposed to dress up and come to church and look our best. And something can be said for that. We're going to be worshiping God. We want to, you know, we don't want to be disrespectful. And, and, you know, general things can be said. But what happens when James condemns the idea that a man who comes in in shabby clothing is given less than a seat? And I think metaphorically a man's given less than a seat when you say, well, no, I think about this guy coming to church like that. And, um, And people feel the pressure of that. And the poor in our society won't come to middle-class churches because they aren't able to keep up with the Joneses. And you say, well, they shouldn't worry about that. But the fact is, our insistence upon how it's dignified and proper makes them worry about it. And so there's a lot of forms of etiquette that strike me as being clearly contrary to Scripture. And then there are also forms of etiquette that I think are just downright silly. Uh, it may be convenient to always know where your salad fork is so that when you... Uh, you're engaged in a, in a vivid conversation. You don't reach for it and get the wrong utensil and start eating with your knife or something. Um, but apart from that, I mean, the idea that Christians are somehow being gross and, and not respectful and therefore not keeping the fifth commandment when they don't put the salad fork in the right way strikes me as almost too incredible to, work, to be worthy of discussion. Slavery. The discussion of slavery comes under the fifth commandment also. And, um, boy, this is a big subject. It's it's really worth a couple of hours. I commend to you uh, John Murray's discussion of slavery and principles of conduct, not as the best discussion ever written, but as an example of a 20th century northerner recognizing something, and that's that the biblical concept of slavery is not necessarily the concept of slavery that we have known uh, throughout history and even in our own country, and that we ought not, in condemning the abuses of slavery in our own country, and we ought not thereby to condemn the biblical practice of slavery. And if you wanted a short discussion of that, you might look at my uh, answer to Ian, not to Ian Murray, to Aiken Taylor uh, that was gen- made generally available a few months ago. I discussed how the biblical concept of slavery is a blessed institution intended for the relief of people who are in financial distress. And uh, I, every time I think about this, I guess uh, if you want to get one thing in your notes, remember this, that when a slave was released in the Old Testament, the master had to reward him prosperously. He had, to, he had to send him out in a wealthy fashion. So when a man said, I'm an insolvent debtor, I can't handle my finances, would you take me on as your slave, would you assume my debts, and I'll, and I'll work for you. Uh, that man worked for him, and it was only for a limited period, six years, which may sound long to all of us, but in terms of a lifespan, the man got out of debt, and the master rewarded him fully when he left, and he was able to go off and make a, a fresh start. That certainly beats the welfare state that we are suffering under today. And so let me commend you to doing some reading on the question of slavery and not condemning it from, uh, 
from your childhood educational experience that says, well, the slaves never learned anything and they were beaten, all that. Slavery as practiced and slavery as commanded may be different things. Sinful commands. Well, we've really taken up this question over and over again in the course. Um, if we're to honor those who are in authority over us, what do we do when they tell us uh, we're to do something contrary to God's word? Draw a distinction between commands made in sin and commands to sin. All right? You may work for an employer sometime who, in a wrath or in a rage, tells you to do something, and you think that that commandment was given in sin. Uh, but the fact is he may not have told you to do something which was sinful. Um, You want to pose an interesting question? No, I dare not. We'll get into it. Uh, but let me force you to do some thinking on your own. What should be the response of uh, the Christian when the authorities tell you you are not to have Bibles? You say, well, that clearly is sinful because uh, that's contrary to the Word of God. But where does the Word of God tell you you have to have a Bible? Remember that when the New Testament was written, very few people could read. It wasn't until the Middle Ages that Bibles could be, uh, until the end of the Middle Ages, beginning of... Uh, the Renaissance, with the printing press, that, that people would even be able to get their hands on literature and, and that way. How then should a Christian respond if he lived in Russia and was told it was sinful to own a Bible? However, you could have a pastor who had a Bible he could preach to you. Um, I'm only posing that because that we could really go round and round on just what that means and how the, the command given in the ancient world applies to the modern world and all that. Well, we've got five more commandments to go and five minutes to do it in. <laughs> Sixth commandment, we're not to kill. The distinctions I wanted to talk about, basically, what is killing here. The word is slaying in Hebrew, and uh, it doesn't apply to animals and so forth. It applies to human beings, and the distinction between first-degree murder and second-degree murder is one that's found in the Bible. By the way, those uh, when you run into people who say, we don't have to keep the case law of the Old Testament, you might want to ask them if they think it's uh, a moral obligation to distinguish between accidental homicide and intentional homicide. And he says, well, of course it's a necessity. Ask him to, to prove that necessity apart from going to the Old Testament. Um, the Old Testament is where we draw these distinctions. The sanctity of life is obviously the reason for the commandment, life made in the image of God. Um, the commandment forbids not just murder, but aggression against people. It positively requires that we watch out for their health and safety. We've already discussed the parapet around the roof and all that. But Jesus shows us that the command goes even further, that we must respect human life so much that we should be concerned for reconciliation at all costs. Leave your gift at the altar. Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. It is so important that you have a proper relationship with others that you have nothing that's going to be separating you, even with an emotional breach. The question of abortion uh, is one that we've talked about all along, but I don't have time to give my long lecture on abortion now. Throughout the Bible, the fetus is considered a human being from the point of conception, is addressed as such, and is considered as such by God. In Exodus 21, the commandment having to do with an accidental abortion makes it rather clear that God holds the life of the fetus even in higher regard or protects it with a higher sanctity than ordinary human life because an accidental homicide would not ordinarily carry the death penalty. But in Exodus 21, accidental abortion does. Um, euthanasia, it is important to distinguish between allowing a man to die and taking the man's life, and I realize that there can be borderline cases, but um, euthanasia uh, is not... A person is not engaging in suicide or euthanasia to say, I'm going to die with dignity, I'm going to take myself off the machines and all that. However, a whole other moral 
question arises when you have to make the decision for somebody else who may be in a coma and that sort of thing. There, you see, you presume upon the rights of others when you decide whether he would want to be off the machines or not. And um, there's so much more to be said on that, but I won't. Technological control of human life has to do with uh, transplants and with um, a genetic engineering and all that. Um, the question of racial justice, it seems to me, is a subsection of the question of reconciliation. If we have respect for human life, and that means we have to respect for reconciliation, then Christians of all people should be concerned about the hatred between the races and be doing what they can to bring about reconciliation there too. The Seventh Commandment forbids adultery. Um, I have a discussion of divorce in my book, Theonomy, that I'll let you pursue. Uh, we have talked about polygamy already. We had about a 25-minute discussion of that, so I'll skip over it. Now, here's a challenge to you. How would you prove that premarital sex is wrong according to the Bible? Uh, it's not quite as, as easy as uh, one might have thought. Um, I think the answer to that is that the Bible teaches that the only proper context for sexual relations is marriage. And therefore, while there may not be a specific commandment about not having sexual relations before marriage, the, the general teaching that marriage is the only proper context of it accomplishes the same end of prohibiting anything outside of the marital um, union. Boy, birth control. Uh, is it right to engage in family planning? Uh, are we supposed to so trust ourselves to God that we take no thought for uh, the consequences of our sexual lives? Um, how about artificial means of birth control? How about means which are somewhat permanent, say uh, tubal litigation or um, a vasectomy or something like that? Uh, if you think the elementary ethical questions are difficult when you start piling two or three together and, and asking how they relate to each other, asking this question of permanent birth control becomes all the more difficult. Uh, sex and media and humor, in a sense, we've talked about already. Homosexuality, I wrote a book on the subject, and so I won't say anything more about that right now. The whole question of women's rights, obviously a word has to be tossed in. Um, Proverbs 31 makes it very clear that a woman is not to be this mousy sort of person who has no rights and no personality and no abilities and no uh, uh, advancement in life. On the other hand, there's plenty in the Bible to show that the woman's exercise of her initiative is for the sake of her family and in the context of her family. And then the question as it comes over into the church becomes more important. And I want to caution you against the liberal idea that uh, because Paul was part of his culture that those things he said about women don't have to be taken all that seriously. As a matter of fact, what Paul and Jesus said about women was absolutely revolutionary in their day. Paul, who was considered the enemy of women by so many radicalists today, was, in fact, the champion of women's rights in his own day. However, Paul didn't champion the rights in such a way that he forgot the creation sanctions and, uh, and the proper relationship of man to woman. And I don't think you can get around the fact that a woman is to be silent in church in the sense of teaching authority over men. But now, having said that, Remember also that Apollos was theologically educated by both Priscilla and Aquila. And uh, there is nothing to keep a woman uh, in, pers in personal relationship with a man uh, being his theological mentor. Now, Priscilla obviously was the mentor of Apollos. However, she cannot exercise court uh, authority in the corporate church over men. The Eighth Commandment says we aren't to steal. <laughs> You're going to accept this right off. I think that supports the capitalist system. Uh, because capitalism is, at base, the assertion of the right of private property. Socialism denies the right of private property in teaching communal ownership. Consequently, socialism is a violation of the Eighth Commandment. 
Um, however, having supported capitalism, the form of capitalism I support is the biblical one, which means that individually and as a church we have a responsibility for the poor. Um, I think some interesting questions can be asked, even though, unfortunately, it's often the socialists who are asking them about Christian uses of luxury and whether we don't overdo that today. How about gambling? Is that wrong? What kind of argument would you give against gambling? Well, is it always entrusting yourself to fate? Is that what's wrong with gambling, that one is you know, living on the basis of fate? Or is it that um, he is coveting when he gambles and therefore it's always wrong? Um, I think gambling, per se, well, gambling for the most part uh, is uh, an evil that must be um, warned against. But I'm not sure that a, a Christian who happens to be passing through Reno and puts a quarter in a slot machine just for fun is, in fact, gambling in the sense that we would condemn. Um, if we believe it's all right to play miniature golf and a man can afford $4 for a game of miniature golf, why can't he say, well, I really don't care. The game I want to play is not miniature golf. I want to go into this casino. Now forget the drinking. And, uh, the, I mean, all the other things uh, apart. It doesn't seem to me that a man saying, well, my $4 will be played on different kinds of games and I'm willing to throw it away. And, and if I win at it, just like I win the door prize at, at uh, a party or something, well, that's great too. I realize that's pushing the point, but you have to remember what is and what is not wrong with gambling. It's not the game per se, but it's the addiction to it, trying to get something for nothing as a way of livelihood and coveting the, the proper gains of others. Business ethics. Boy, how much could be said about the honoring of contracts, uh, the way employers should treat um, those that they employ, the way, they, uh, the way uh, workers should respond to their, their bosses, whether you ought to take pencils home from work. I mean, the whole thing. Then usury... Um, I'll just ask you to read some of the, the uh, debate between John Mitchell and myself and the Presbyterian Guardian from a couple of years ago. I believe that interest-bearing loans are not proper between Christians, and I think everybody should grant that interest-bearing loans between Christians when it's a matter of distress uh, is, in fact, taking advantage of your Christian brother in a violation of the law of God against stealing. The Ninth Commandment is one of the most difficult of all most difficult, if you'll, if you'll read the larger catechism, as to the duties required and the sins forbidden, I think you'll be bowled over. And if you're not driven to your knees to ask God for his forgiveness, you won't have read it very sensitively. But um, James puts it this way, if a man stumbles not in tongue, that is a perfect man. Let me tell you, it's very, very hard to keep the ninth commandment. In fact, James says if a man could control his tongue, sanctification would be easy if he could control his whole body. And so we all sin with respect to the way we express ourselves, the, the way we honor the truth. Uh, now, different forms of that that we might have talked about if we had time tonight. Perjury means in a legal setting when there's an oath taken. Slander has to do with anything that jeopardizes the good name of your neighbor when that is not called for. And even in cases where the truth um, is the truth, the confession tells us that you can speak the truth unseasonably. And the confession tells us that sometimes speaking the truth can be sinful when, in fact, God would rather have us be silent. Uh, the whole question of guarding reputations and the way that one takes care of interpersonal offenses, Matthew 18, Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2, desperately needs discussion in the church today. I'm more and more convinced that Bill Gothard is right when he says that the prevailing sin of the Christian church is the idea that uh, we can have these unreconciled personal relationships and we can use our tongues in an unholy and ungodly way against each other. Uh, the whole question of justice in, in, in the law court and the way uh, decisions are made in the law court comes under the Ninth Commandment. And then the difficult question is whether it's ever right to lie. 
in defense of human life. For instance, was Rahab right to lie in defense of the spies? And I can only briefly tell you that there are different views of that. John Murray says it is never right to say something which is untrue. Consequently, Rahab was wrong in lying, but she's commended only for protecting the spies. Meredith Klein says that from time to time in the Old Testament, there is an intrusion of the ethics of the consummation, where the love relationship ordinarily required is not now required. So that Rahab wasn't bound to not lie because there was an intrusion of the ethics of the eschaton. Yeah, I, I see the looks on your faces. I feel somewhat the same way. And then there is the answer that I would offer, and that's that Rahab's lie was an exception, a divinely warranted exception to the Ninth Commandment, even as killing in self-defense is a, an exception to the commandment against the slaying uh, other human beings and so forth. Uh, now, what's the di I think the support for the view that I would advance is that the Bible just, in too many cases, seems to give tacit approval by God to those who are not telling the truth. The, the Hebrew midwives... And when Elisha tells the uh, blinded Syrians, no, the one you're looking for is not here, I'll take you to him. And then he leads them back to where they don't want to go. And he says, well, here I am. I mean, that sort of... And, you know, a, a used car dealer, if you go to a used car dealer and, uh, and you ask something about a car and he tells you only part of the truth and thereby misleads you, we would say he's lied to you. Now, God told Samuel to tell Saul only part of the truth once, to mislead Saul. God commanded Samuel to say, I'm going to make sacrifice when in fact he was going to make sacrifice and, more importantly, by the way, to ordain a new king, which was Saul's main interest. And Samuel knew it, and certainly God knew it, but God told him to tell only part of the truth. And I take that as a divinely sanctioned deception of Saul. Um, moreover, in James, the second chapter, Rahab is commanded for sa sending the, Saul, uh, the, the servants of the king out another way. Not simply for protecting them, but for sending them out another way. Another from what? From the way... Uh, she sent the spies out another way, other than the way she sent the king's messengers. And therefore, I do think tacitly we find their commendation of her um, lying. Somebody says, well, God couldn't justify somebody for an exception to one of his commandments. Well, remember that the example just given right above that is Abraham being willing to offer Isaac as a sacrifice to God, and human sacrifice is uh, clearly forbidden too. And so I'm not sure that we can say, as Murray does, that there is no exception to that commandment. I think the Bible does give us an exception. Now, having said that, in our time being out and wanting to end, um, I, think, I think the most difficult argument to overcome for those of us who believe that there are exceptions, it hasn't changed my mind, but I want to be honest and give you both sides of this, I think the toughest argument from the other side are not the exegetical ones. Those, um, I think the exegesis is in favor of those who think there's an exception. The difficult argument is, well, now, doesn't that mean there oughtn't to ever be martyrs for Jesus Christ? Because if lying is all right to defend innocent human life, then Christians should always be justified in lying to those who say, will you deny Christ? And uh, you can say, oh yeah, I deny Christ. You know, fingers crossed, lying to protect your life. Um, now my answer to that is that there, are, there may be exceptions, but that's not one of them. And the Bible just does not ever allow us the, uh, the luxury of denying our affiliation with God. See, the whole reason that Rahab was justified in lying is that her loyalty changed from the pagan king to the living God. And so it wasn't as though that she could lie about anything. It's because of her affiliation with God that she could protect innocent human life. Consequently, I'm not sure that the argument about no martyrdom, if lying is ever possible, proves the point, because the answer is the Bible does not ever give us the right to deny our relationship to God. But it does give us the right to deceive those who are going to take the information to, uh, to kill the innocent. And consequently, if the Gestapo came to my door, I feel uh, convinced in my own heart that the thing to do is to lie and to lie boldly to them.
but you may not agree. Um, I'm facing a difficulty. Not only have I kept you longer than my promise, for which I beg your forgiveness, and I haven't finished our lecture stuff, which I'm very sad, but um, I'm awaiting a long-distance call at home in just a few minutes that's rather important to me and to my wife, and so I have to run off. And I hate to do that, especially on tonight with all these questions having come up. But, um, you know, what we might do, and I'd be willing to do this if you wanted to, is we could um, be in communication with each other and over the next two weeks, maybe on Sunday after church or something like that. If you wanted to get together for a, a kind of last session as the ethics class just to ask some interesting questions or pursue these things, I just want to tell you I'm available to that and would be willing. But if I don't hear any response from you, that won't hurt my feelings. It's just I feel bad to cut us off so, so quickly. And I think it would be appropriate with our last night here to ask the Lord's blessing upon our labors together. Father, we ask that these ten evenings we've been together, that you would have been present with us and that your Holy Spirit would be using this occasion to take your word and to drive it home to our hearts and to make us more holy people. Father, we confess that as we look into your word and to the requirements that it gives us for our lives, that we are devastated by our sin, that we are so unrighteous that we have no right to even pray to you now. But we ask, Lord, that you would forgive us for the mercies of Jesus Christ that his shed blood would cover our sin take away your wrath. We ask you, Lord, that we might be reconciled to you and that you might restore us to favor, that we might be able to call you Father and we might be able to trust in the final day that we would be received to you and into your kingdom. We ask you, Lord, that as members of your kingdom and as followers of your Son, that the power of your Spirit would enable us to understand your commands and to live by them. Lord, we confess not only that we're sinful, but we're also confused. And sometimes it's very difficult to understand the facts and to understand what we should do and how to apply your word. We know, Father, that comes from our own slothfulness and our indifference. And we pray you would take that away and that you would excite us about the obligations that you lay on us, that we would look forward to being able to understand and applying them. And, Lord, we ask that you'd give us faithfulness in living in that way and boldness to do whatever your word would require. And, Lord, we ask for that boldness, especially at the end of this 20th century when it is such an embarrassment to stand up for your standards. Lord, we pray that we'd never be ashamed to take a stand for them. And that, Lord, we would not be ashamed to you by taking your name and then not living by those standards. But, Lord, give us the boldness to be witnesses in our age, that we might be salt and light, that your kingdom indeed might come, that it might come on earth, and that your will would be done, even as it's done in heaven. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.